Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Philip Lancaster, Dr. Dustin Pendle, and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. Happy to have you with us on this nice spring day. Hopefully, it's a nice spring day in your part of the world because we are getting close to, very, very close to May, and that's when a lot of people turn out to pasture. So hopefully, your grass is green, the cows are ready to go start grazing very soon. And we're going to talk about several topics today. One of them is bloat and how to deal with bloat in pasture cattle, both what you want to recognize and how you want to handle it. Dustin's also going to fill us in on some trends in export and imports for U.S. beef cattle production. And Philip's going to address copper in your herd. Do you need it? Is it something that would benefit your ranch or your operation? And we'll wrap up with a listener question Talking about the difference, we talked about BVD, bovine viral diarrhea, a few weeks ago. Talking about it versus another disease called Yoni's, which causes diarrhea. So we'll talk about that near, near the end. But before we get into those, we have a super important topic that because Bob has come to us and, and he has a grill dilemma. Go ahead, Bob. Ask the experts. Well, yes, indeed. So I've, I've, got, a, I've got a propane grill right now. And it's time for a new one because I don't know if you've ever seen the, the situation where you've got like holes in the uh, in the delivery system. So you've got some errant uh, flames coming out where it's not supposed to be flaming and things like that. So that that's the current situation. So I'm thinking maybe it's about time to upgrade to a new grill. And I know you guys are some master grillers. And so I, I've, I've done charcoal in the past. I've got a propane right now. And so I'm, I'm thinking about do I go for another propane, a charcoal, or a pellet grill. Because, I mean, the, the thing I like about the propane is it's, it doesn't take very long to get hot. And, and I, I'm pretty happy with the, the steaks and burgers and stuff we get off of it. And it's so easy. But, but I, yeah, I hear Dustin is kind of the grill master. I, I'm most interested in what he has to say, but I'll listen to your guys' opinion too. <laughs> Thanks for considering that, Bob. <laughs> I, I so a few more questions for you. How much time do you normally have when you're grilling? Well, I try to not plan ahead at all, and my wife just tells me tonight is a grilling night, and um, and we typically typically do uh, steaks, burgers, hot dogs, vegetables. Um, but but I'm willing to I'm willing to try to branch out and do something new. But that's that's the that's the family history of grilling. So no smoking per se on this thing. I haven't really done that. But. Which, if it's a propane, uh, it's still doable. Still well, I doable. get smoked sometimes. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> I get some flare-ups and some smoke. And so my experience, uh, I do have a propane, and we use it for when we just want to hurry up and grill some burgers really quick, like what you were describing, or we have chicken breast or something, I'll throw it on the propane uh, or vegetables, like you're saying. Charcoal, I used to have a charcoal. Uh, I just was never real very good at charcoal. And I was also very impatient, didn't have time. Uh, but it was also, it was a smoker. Uh, it was a cheaper one. That Maybe that was part of my issue too. Uh, but I always felt like I was babysitting it. You know, when I was trying to smoke, whatever I was trying to smoke. Uh, I did, you know, a couple of years ago, purchase a nicer pellet grill mm -hmm. and which it actually, 
in, I think, what, eight minutes, 12 minutes, it can go from nothing to, you know, 350 degrees. So it's not quite as fast as my propane, but it's almost. Uh, now, the nice thing about that is I use that for smoking. Mm. And generally when I do briskets, uh, which is probably what I do the most of, I'll generally put them on about nine or 10 o'clock at night. I'll set it for 225 and then... Just let it go. One thing I have to, the only thing I have to check is, am I out of pellets? Uh, for me, that works because I just don't have time with kids and sports and work and who knows whatever else. I just don't have time anymore. And so I, there's something to said about charcoal. Not, not, but I just, at time, I just don't have time to do like I want to. So, so you're kind of leaning me towards the, the pellet maybe, or at least check it out. I just look at it, yeah. yeah. Uh, at least explore a little bit. There's some pretty nice ones that are even made here, local in Kansas. That, that that's what I've got. Uh, but there are a lot of other nice pellet grills out there. There's pros and cons with all these. So yeah. So here's here's what I'm thinking, Bob. You you get uh, one of each, and then you make food and you bring it into us. We'll tell you which one we like best. There you go. And then that'll be that'll be our plan because there's no no risk of us overeating in that scenario. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, speak, speaking of that, and as we, as we think about, and I mentioned at the top, this is where, when we turn cattle into pasture, and a lot of times we have really lush grazing at this time of year. And one of the concerns that I've heard people bring up before is thinking about bloat. So maybe tell us, Bob, tell us a little bit about what causes bloat in cattle on pasture. Now, I'm not talking about cattle that are being fed grain or different. Let's talk just pasture. Yeah, so, so bloat on pasture is almost always associated with uh, legumes. So alfalfa, clover, those would be the, the plants that are most associated. Although, although it is possible on, on a wheat pasture or something like that to, to have bloat as well. Um, and, and it's really, it's a balancing issue in that those are great forages. I mean, you can get really good animal performance. The nutrient profile of those, those green um, legumes or wheat pasture is really, really good. So you get great animal performance. But what happens actually is the, the rumen bacteria just naturally make a lot of gas. That's why cows belch and, and get rid of gas that way. But uh, sometimes with these legumes, you can get some some froth buildup. So, you know, think about, you know, froth on the top of a, you know, when you're washing dishes or something like that. And then those gas bubbles are trapped. And so, you know, the rumen is this big uh, fermentation vat. And if the the cow or calf can't belch, um, that that is trapped in there and, and, and gets so the rumen kind of sits on the left side. So the classic sign of bloat is the left side is really extended and the animal's uncomfortable and it can put enough pressure on, on the lungs so they can't breathe well. And, and so, you, you know, they can die from bloat um, and it, it can be quite serious relatively quickly. Um, so it's serious disease on a really nice high quality feedstuff that we like to use. Uh, and so you can kind of see that on one hand, yeah, I really like to, to do some grazing on some of these forages. On the other hand, uh, you do have this risk of bloat. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, the hand we're dealt as cattlemen that this is, uh, and, and you're right, we're, we're coming up on the time of year when we kind of see this occasionally. Well, 
tell me wh- why wouldn't they be able to belch? I don't. So so normally they belch, and then you're saying they eat this specific type of forage. Why would why would they not be able to belch? Well, well basically, all the all the gas is trapped in the in the foam. Basically, so so foam is not free gas. It's trapped in the foam, and so uh, and they can't belch up the foam. Basically, uh, so it's just trapped in there, um, and that, that's that's the issue. So, Philip, I may may turn to you and say, you know, as we think about these pastures and and what he described, uh, clover, alfalfa, legumes, big leafy leafy plants. If I balanced those, so if I had a clover grass mix, do I have to be as concerned about bloat? No, that that helps some, and and we can adapt the cattle to it a little bit too if we. Um, kind of introduce them a a little bit at a time just you know giving them a few hours um on that and then moving them off and do that for a few days in a row so that they kind of that they kind of start to adapt um to that and then there's some products out there too that we can use is some minerals that bloat guard um things in there that we can use to help prevent and and even or if we have a, a supplement or something like that that's got rumensin in it, that that help can help reduce uh, incidents of bloat and things like that. We've seen that on on wheat pasture situations. Because um, some of the, so, some of those things you're talking about actually changes the bacteria profile in the gut and allows yeah. them to to better digest. Yep. Yeah, and they they produce a little less gas, um, and so um, and it and it balances consumption some too so they don't they don't they eat smaller grazing bouts throughout the day instead of one one or two large ones and so that helps as well too okay so i think a couple things there that you guys said uh adapt to it know what forage base you're going to make sure that the cattle are ready for it adapt to it and then the other thing bob that you said if you have a severe bloat that's a great you need to address that at that point. So it it is a situation that, yeah, yeah, it's an emergency. You want to address that. So talk to your, talk to your veterinarian. Uh, If you have some cases, keep an eye out for them and maybe talk to your extension specialist about how to make sure that you've got the right mix of things in your pasture. Cause as you mentioned, the legumes, we often want them mixed in with our, our grass pastures. Yeah. And, and one other thing is there's enough animal to animal variations. A lot of times my experience has been you've got a whole group of cattle out there grazing legumes and there's one or two that keep bloating. And, and my advice then is almost we'll give up on those two, pull, pull them out, put them someplace else. And, it, and because there can be enough individual animal differences that there's just one or two that seem to be really sensitive and everybody else is doing fine. Um, and so I think you need to be serious about those, those one or two could could die if you don't do something but um sometimes you just you've identified the one that is really sensitive and and just remove them from that and leave everybody else on that really good quality forage well and some of them can be very selective eaters right there there are individuals that will go out and they'll be like hey uh, you guys get the grass i'm gonna go ahead and take the clover yeah. They know how to do. <laughs> That's all you. <laughs> they know how to do the buffet just right. That's so. exactly right. So uh, as, as we think, and I'm going to switch topics here. Dustin, I, I, you had a good chart that was put out by the USDA Economic Research Service, and it, and it really talked about imports and exports. And we've talked about this before on the program that in the U.S. we import about as much 
beef as we export. And it shows about 11%, somewhere in there, 10, 11%. And over the last 20 years, the average has been the same, but those numbers are moving around. I guess I just wanted to get your impression of where are we going with imports and exports? Are they, you expect them to stay the same? Do you see some variability coming up? What are your thoughts? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, and so I think in particular, as you've mentioned, the USDA Economic Research put out this nice chart yesterday. Of course, my internet went out in the building, so I can't look at it. <laughs> uh, but you said it was what last 20 years, about 2000. And so yep. it, what it was showing was production across time, but then it was showing how imports and exports, uh, probably what a percent, how much we import and export is a percentage of production. And for the most part, I think it was, I think it was trying to show that when we have production events, how that can have a big change in uh, imports and exports, correct? Yep. And so there were, what, three events across time since 2020 that had a major impact, either production event or some kind of international event that had major impact to the beef trade. Number one was in 2003 when we had the BSE. Really wasn't much of a production impact, but we lost all international markets. And so the uh you know obviously export markets we didn't have any imports uh we we did have change in imports resulting there was a second shock probably what about 2014 2015 we had those really high prices for cattle but that was a stemming back from the what drought in 2012 i think in the u.s that had a had a major impact uh so there was another event then and then obviously 2020 what, May or March, April 2020, uh, we had another impact that, that kind of had this impact of the, the import-export balance. But, but as you pointed out on LAR, I mean, overall, I mean, generally we've exported and imported roughly the same. Maybe it's a little bit different here or there on a given time. Fast forward, uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly, I think, I think they're expecting to have maybe a run-up in, in the export markets. In other words, exporting beef. I think they're expecting forecasts to be up uh, here in 2021 over maybe 2020. Uh, but I think the reason this is all important, why we talk about this so much on, on, on this podcast, it comes back to, it has a direct impact, I think, on the prices that the producers at the cow-calf feedlot levels are seeing. And so I think that's why we talk about this a lot. Uh, the other thing I think it's also important to point out is, yes, we import as much as we export, but it's all different cuts. I think that's another thing to keep in mind, right? We're exporting things that we typically don't consume here in the U.S., such as tongues or livers. And so I don't know, it's just, it's just something else just to keep in mind, I guess, to the, to the listeners, that that is definitely having a huge impact or an impact on prices uh, that that the, the live animals are seeing. Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things is you look at this. So so production bounces up and down. But if you draw a line through that, it's a it's a relatively straight line. I Meaning we've over the last 20 years, our production has not dramatically changed. Uh, obviously, the the events you mentioned impacted both exports and imports, the, the BSE being the biggest of those in 2003. 
but our, our export markets, and, and you alluded to this, Dustin, they're in an important part, but it's always measured on percents, right? And percents means that that impacts multiple animals. It's not just that, hey, I'm an exporter and I export my calves. No, we export parts of multiple calves as they go across. But it does seem like there's a fair bit of variation on the import side. Any reasons there would be more variability in imports than exports? Well, it's probably largely driven by prices, right? I mean, if, uh, or if we've got a lot of extra supply in the U.S., our prices go way down. I mean, your international markets, companies, they probably don't want to export to the U.S. Uh, for a lower price, right? If they can send it somewhere else, maybe for a higher price or even a similar price, but maybe the transportation that the charges are less. So that could be driving part of that. So in, think back to um, BSC, right? We lost all export markets. So what did we do? We had a huge supply of beef domestically because we couldn't export. So did we actually, do we need more imports? Well, no, what happens, the price went down, right, of, of beef. And if I'm, an, if I'm, we'll say somebody from Australia, and all of a sudden, do I really want to ship it all the way to U.S. if I'm going to receive a much lower price relative to maybe somewhere in Asia? So that could be one of the reasons why uh, we're seeing the, the, that bouncing around, I guess, of imports uh, relative to exports. Great point. In fact, when I look at this chart, it looks like there's a little lag between you look at production in the U.S. and then you look at the import line is going to do uh, just the opposite of what production did. <laughs> so if production if production was down, the imports are uh, moving right along with it. So I think you're exactly right. It's back to supply and demand. So that's interesting. We'll keep an eye on that and we'll keep you appraised as we see as changes come that may affect your operation. Philip, I want, I want to go back to you, and, and we've talked, uh, last couple shows, we've talked some about minerals, supplementing minerals, the importance of that. Uh, we talked about high magnesium mineral. I want to focus on something in particular. I want to focus on copper, because sometimes we talk about copper, and, and Bob, I'm going to follow up with you and ask about the importance of it for reproduction, but how do I know if a copper deficiency is a problem in my herd? Well, uh, I mean, some signs. One of the one of the the early signs that we we say, I don't know if it's early. I, I say that, but one of the signs that we say that to look for is rough hair coats and change in hair coat color because copper is an important enzyme in in some pigmentation develop, um, and things like that. And so the hair coat um, will change and, and things like that. And, um, and, and Bob will know, explain here. I'll just turn, turn to Bob. What, what are the performance things that we're looking for? Yeah, trace minerals and, and, you know, their name implies that they're not needed in large amounts and they're not. Um, they're, they're largely driven by the soil content of these minerals. But what makes it complicated is, um, you can have some antagonisms. You can have some some uh, these trace minerals tied up by other minerals, typically, uh, and so it can get a little bit complicated. But um, 
by and large, some of their important functions in the body are some of the things that are important to us, like immunity and reproduction and those kinds of things. So when you have some real uh, trace mineral problems, it can show up as fewer cows pregnant, uh, some more calf health issues and those types of things. And some of the things Philip talked about, um, copper in particular is associated with some pigments and so hair color changes a little bit. So black cattle kind of become gray and, and reddish cattle become more yellowish red instead of a darker red. And, and then you can also see some hush, hoof lesions with a couple of these minerals as well, because minerals are important for proper hoof function. And so some of the, so there's two ways to look at it is one is if things are going really well on your operation. So uh, cows are getting pregnant in a timely manner. You've got a good breed up and calf health is pretty good. Then probably your, your nutrition, including your mineral profile is pretty good and doesn't need a lot of, of uh, change. Uh, on the other hand, if you've got some odd things that are happening, such as poor reproduction, then is really explained by your bull fertility and nutrition and things like that, then it's, it's one of the things that should be investigated. It, to be honest, I think uh, trace mineral problems are not very common uh, for many, many operations, but when they show up, they're, they're a real problem that, that is sometimes kind of frustrating to deal with. And copper's one, so kind of an example here, when working with a, a situation where you know the ranch has uh, high molybdenum levels in forage and their water source has high sulfur in it and those are two other minerals that antagonize the absorption of copper and so um that situation there the the ranch needs a, a specially formulated mineral mix to overcome those antagonisms on copper absorption to, to make sure that they are uh, getting enough copper absorbed. Even though they're consuming the amount that they need, it's not being absorbed. And so you, you pay attention, like Bob said, certain situations where those things prop up and, and we have to do something specific with the mineral supplement to correct that issue. So I'm going to ask, a, so, and it makes sense, Try to figure out if it's an issue on your operation or not. You guys talked about some of the broad level signs, easy to see with the hair coat. Also, reproductive performance, calf performance uh, may be worth investigating. Most vitamins and minerals, we talk about if I supplement them and I give too much, then it just passes through the system and I have maybe spent money I didn't need to, to spend, right? I, I give too much, it, it just passes through. Is copper that way, or are there potential of, of toxicity if I'm feeding too much copper? Uh, for, for the most part, I would, I would say that's true, that if you feed too much, it, you've just wasted some money, but probably not any health effects. But that's, it is possible. For cattle. For cattle, because there's a couple of points, yeah. and, and you made that point because uh, small ruminants, sheep and goats, are very sensitive to high copper levels. In fact, some of these higher copper um, trace mineral packages that might be appropriate for a cattle operation might be deadly to sheep. Uh, and so you want to be careful about that. They, they are very sensitive to that, which would point out that if you got high enough, you could cause problems to cattle. But that's, that's pretty unrealistic uh, that you could get that high. But it, it, it is conceivably possible, but very possible uh, with sheep. And so don't let sheep around some of these higher copper supplements. 
Well, and it's, it kind of goes back to one of the things. We talk, there's a there's a safe and adequate range that we talk about, or an optimal range. If you eat more, is not necessarily better, and so um, we we got to stay in that that range. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's true with a lot of our a lot of our minerals. It's easy to say, well, if if I just give them more, if I give them more, but finding out for your operation and there's a couple things you can do a lot of times the extension agent in your area may have an idea of where your area copper status is because a lot of these things are based on geographic reasons for some of the reasons that philip described also look at your herd and how your herd is doing and it may be a great time to consult with your veterinarian or local nutritionist and say is this something that i should be thinking about and one of the key points that you guys made is I can't just take an assumption from one part of the country and extrapolate it to my ranch and say, yep, I need to do exactly what those guys are doing. Copper's a, a great one. There are some other examples, especially in the trace mineral world, where some areas, absolutely, you need to supplement. Other areas, you probably don't. Find out where you are and make that decision for your, your specific operation. I do want to, as, as we always enjoy having a listener question, we had a really good listener question this week because I mentioned at the top, we talked about bovine viral diarrhea, and then there was a question about yonis, and yonis, J-O-H-N-E-S, yonis disease, is a disease which will cause diarrhea, especially in adult cattle, many times older cows. So we may think of this in older cows that are five to seven years old. The question from the listener, which I think is a good question, is how, how do you distinguish what are the, some of the similarities and differences between BVD, bovine viral diarrhea, and yonis? And Bob, I'm going to turn to you and I give you well, first shot at this. Well, as my first shot is it's really unfortunate that diarrhea is in the name of bovine viral diarrhea because that's actually one of the signs that we don't see very often. Um, this, this disease first was apparent or was first discovered in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And at that time, diarrhea was one of the, the signs that you saw frequently. But, but the disease has changed over time and that it's pretty rare, honestly, for an animal to show signs of diarrhea. But we're stuck with it still in the name. So that being so, that lays the groundwork. When I think of yonis, I think of adult cows with diarrhea. And so if I saw an adult cow with unexplained diarrhea, yonis would be very high on my list of things that are probably causing that. If I saw an adult cow with diarrhea, bovine viral diarrhea would actually be very, very low on my list. Um, it's not as likely. It is possible, but not as likely to be associated with that. So it's, it's really unfortunate that, that it was named the way it was named, you know, uh, 70 years ago. Um, so... And, and there's some other, both of these diseases are, um, like I said, like I said, in some ways similar, but in other ways quite different in that BVD, I see probably my biggest problems in young animals because it's probably the most important thing it does is it suppresses the immune system. So you can see calves with pneumonia, maybe due to BVD, but maybe due to something else, but their immune system was just suppressed by the BVD virus. Uh, and so you see that, you see some lamenesses in adult cows and stuff, all kind of other problems that were made more possible because BVD suppressed the immune system. So that's what I think of when I think of BVD, although the other classic one is some um, abortions and some 
pregnancy loss and those types of things. So Yoni's disease, almost the only sign I see is diarrhea. And, and if I see an adult animal with diarrhea, that is really high on my list of things to be concerned about. Uh, if I'm worried about BVD, I'm typically thinking about younger animals, you know, less than a year, two years of age, particularly calves, and kind of a, a wide variety of things. Reproduction issues, yes, but other health issues as well. And diarrhea is not the highest thing on my list. So unfortunate that the name is the, what it is. Um, and it makes it kind of confusing. Got a quick question for you then. Prevalence in just maybe, I don't oh. know if it's geographic region, but just yeah. across the U.S., is one versus the other, BVD versus Yoni's, is one more prevalent? That's actually a good question. And they're both relatively rare, but important if they occur. So um, for, for BVD, our best estimate is about 7% of cow herds um, have uh, kind of BVD circulating in those herds at a level that, that's probably concerning, right? Um, and so there's, you know, in a county, that would mean that there's several herds that are dealing with BVD, but 93% are not. Um, and so it, it's, that's what I mean by, so it's common enough that as a veterinarian, oh, I see it. You know, I've got several herds that are, are dealing with this, but it's not every herd dealing with it. Yoni's disease, somewhat the same way. Uh, I'm not quite as comfortable saying what the percentage is, but um, many herds, it's either not a problem or a very small problem. Um, t historically been a bigger issue among dairies, but then dairies have really done a good job over the last 20 years of addressing this disease and bringing it down to where it's much, much less common on, on dairy farms. So in both those situations, um, a, a vast majority of herds do not have either one of these diseases, but enough do that as a veterinarian working in, in a several county area, I'll have several herds that are, that are dealing with it. Uh, and so it's, it's, if it's your herd, it's a big deal, uh, but it's certainly not a majority of herds. And if you expect that's a problem, you work with your local veterinarian and they can test, I assume? Yeah, yep. We have pretty good, accurate tests for both. The, the testing methods are different between these two diseases, but a veterinarian can really do a pretty good job of investigating it and, and figuring it out. And it's, it's, I'm going to tie it back to our trace mineral discussion. Um, there's a lot of issues that beef cattle herds can see, and it's frequent enough that it should be kind of in their on the radar screen, something that they think about. So trace mineral deficiency, Yoni's disease, BVD disease, but it's not, you know, three fourths of herds have to deal with this so that everyone should think about it. It's, it's, it's more complicated than that. It means each of these are possible. None of them are more than 50% of herds are, are highly likely. So each of them are possible, but not highly likely. And so the way we attack those is you, you look for signs maybe this is the problem that's in my herd. And then, then I get aggressive once I've kind of got some evidence that it's a problem. Um, but all, right. all three of these issues that we've talked about today, Yoni's, BVD, and trace mineral, many, many herds are in good shape and not, not immediately at risk. Um, but enough are that everybody needs to be aware of it. I think your, your take-home quote, it's what you said earlier, is – you watch for the basics first. You start big and work your way to little. And if your preg rate's good 
if your cattle health is good, you're not having problems with cattle getting sick, uh, then you, it's much less likely that you're dealing with one of these. So, so look at those big indicators, keep track of it, and really changes over time are what we see when we introduce any new disease into the herd, but have a herd health plan. So I, I think that's a I think that's a great approach and good answer to this question. As always, we we enjoy those listener questions. So you can always email us one of those. Or if you've got tips for Bob and his new grill voyage mm-hmm. that he's planning on going on, you can email those to us as well at bci at ksu.edu. 